Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Once we break out of who we are and we become comfortable with our queerness, we experience life so much more fully once we break that first barrier, you know. My name is Isaac Archuleta. Throughout my career, I have worked with a lot of people who found themselves inside of a heterosexual marriage after realizing they were part of the queer community. Some, because of religious beliefs, enter heterosexual marriages because of false hope, thinking that a married life and children will help change or stabilize a different sense of normal. And as they realize their attractions for the same gender do not dissipate, they often have the major challenge of coming out to their spouse and what feels like deconstructing the world they've built. In today's episode, I sit down with an inspiring force of joy, persistence, and compassion. We talk about a defiant joy, asserting your voice, entering the gay culture, and healthy boundaries. Let's take a listen. Hello. Hi, Isaac. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm kind of fangirling up here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Thank yeah. you so much for um, being willing to talk to me. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I'm so excited. Yeah. I saw the recording that you did. Um, yes, yeah, so I was like, yeah, let's totally get him on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that actually was, um, I had to do it a couple of times because I talk so much. So at any point that I start <laughs> rambling, just feel free to cut me off. Uh, sounds good. I was once interviewed on live radio and they had all of these like really cool like hand tricks and things that they would do. It was like, they were like guiding you. It was really fun, but kind of very wracking all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Well, um, happy to have you here, of course. Do you have any intentions for today? Anything that you want to accomplish or you want to say or you want to talk about? You know, there's this this new thought that has like hit my head lately about, um, I keep calling it defiant joy. Like trying to bring this out in our community, you know, as one of the... I guess the protected classes within the queer community, I recognize the beauty of our community and how much, like there's so much color and everything when you look at, and then how all that color is being attacked. And sometimes I feel like, like people either put their head in the sand and they hide behind their privilege. You know, me as a gay, cisgendered, white male, like there's a lot of privilege there that I can hide behind. But then I also think that it's our duty to like stand up and be like defiantly joyful about who we are and the community in general and like embrace the beauty of, you know, the trans community, like the non, non-gender conforming and just so there's so much color. So anyways, that is the thing that keeps popping up because I've been thinking about this too, like my intention, obviously, you know, from my video that I work with guys who were married and as they come out and I have like, I have a brand that I created um, called Live Out Proud, but if I could get across to anybody, it'd be just to be defiantly joyful because in the time that we have right now, I think that 
pisses people off more than being angry. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Totally. You, um, you're saying the defiant joy pisses people off more? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have you seen that? Well, just in, like, I was actually, there's something beautiful, and I'm not going to try and quote them. Um, Alok has always said that when people attack you and it's their, um, they're upset because you've shown them who they could have been. And I see that. I mean, I live in a very conservative area in Arkansas. And there, when I came out 10 years ago, I did lose quite a bit of friends. Um, not quite a bit. I, I lost a few. Um, but what it showed me was who showed up for me. They actually got to meet me, who I am. And that was the first time I actually recognized that I'm a good person and came to terms with the fact that I'm actually a good person, that the things that people like about me are not there because I'm trying to cover up the fact that I'm gay or stay in the closet, but they're actually good things about me. And I think like when we, when we, look into being defiantly joyful about who we are and just proud of who we are and embrace all of us. Um, you can move through life. And if somebody comes at you in a way that um, is trying to damage your spirit, mm-hmm. you can bounce off of that a little more. Mm-hmm. And I also think, I also think that there's a duty for those of us that have kind of, come out but then there's a lot that's said about I don't feel like I need to discuss my sexuality and all that and to part of that I agree straight people don't discuss their sex lives openly mm-hmm. but I do think that there's a responsibility to the greater community for all of us to be or for all of us that are out to be vocal about who we are mm-hmm. and the thing is when I think about the fact that I'm a gay man, like some of the guys that I help, they ask me, well, teach me how to be gay. And I tell them that there's only really a small part of what makes you a gay man, mm-hmm. which is your attraction to men, your, you know, the bigger part of who you are is all the things that have been, you've been hiding because you didn't want the world to see you. And that's what you need to focus on projecting to the world and that and yeah i think one of the things that you're highlighting here which is really cool to me i think that question or the the prompt of teach me how to be gay almost in my language it's um for language that we could use to describe this it's very much kind of like saying how do i now assimilate into a new culture because I feel like there's the mm-hmm. the Isaac Archuleta, the Hispanic um, business owner who identifies, even though I'm pan, it's it's more helpful for me to say I'm culturally gay. And mm-hmm. stepping into that culture, because that's where I feel most at home, um, it's almost like saying, teach me about the gay culture. Mm-hmm. And how do I assimilate into the people where I really find myself and how to live that out, which is this really cool defiant joy aspect 
It's almost mm-hmm. like they're saying, teach me how to be joyful in this defiant way. That's really about embracing my authenticity in a world that doesn't appreciate my authenticity fully. Yeah, um, it is. And that's, that is actually, that's such a great way to put it. And when I think about um, defiant joy too, I think about like my kids. So I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. Our son is the light. Like he's just this boundless energy and exuberance. And like he and I love Monster Jam, you know, the monster trucks. And we go to these monster truck rallies and I post pictures of it. And I, at first everyone's like, oh, that's so mask. You're so butch. And I'm like, what if I just think it's cool and I'm spending time with my son? Like this isn't, and you know, and I think that's the thing that people get so caught up in. And I understand it because it is working to feel comfortable in an environment. Um, but that to me is like an example of how I try and just be defiantly joyful. Like we love, I mean, and we love those (laughs) and it is very, uh, masculine. Although I will say I went to the world finals and a woman won, and I thought that was super badass. That's yeah. Yeah. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, like with these guys, especially the guys that I work with, you know, there's a lot of religious background and all that. And I call it, they, they have lost their checklist. Mm. So when you're in the closet and you're a man married to a woman within the church, there's this checklist, right. Of all these things that you do or you don't do. And that keeps you in line and you're, you're doing the right thing. And then when you had enough and you finally come out, you lose that checklist, which you've spent. God knows how long checking off. And so you lose the check the box mentality and you don't know how to function. It really is something I really am grateful to be a part of these guys as they go on the journey. It teaches me to be appreciative of my journey Mm -hmm. and also just, I guess, the beauty of our queerness. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, I'm kind of wondering if sometimes when someone is embracing this this beauty, it means that they they were without it or detached from it. And I'm wondering if that's part of your story a little bit. Yeah, I could say, um, I mean, just to give you my background, I don't know how much, you know. So um, I grew up in Alabama, if you can't tell by my accent. Um, I was, it was... I was, I was fairly religious. I didn't go to conversion therapy or anything like that, but um, married a woman because I had a, my dad died young when I was young, didn't have the greatest parental relationship. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to create this nuclear unit. The only way I could do that was stay in the closet because, you know, I'm 42 years old. But back then there wasn't an example of, anything where you know i could be out and have a family and so i married my best friend we actually are still friends today i moved back in three years ago with her and her husband and my kids in the house that she and i bought together so it's really modern family-esque but and what a cool story of um, connection and like long-standing love yeah and it, it is um it definitely is love and it's 
something that had to change. Like I said, I've been out 10 years and she had to realize that what she was feeling of love towards me was kind of the same because we had a really good relationship. Mm-hmm. The intimacy part, not so much. Mm-hmm. But um, Makes sense. But yeah, the detachment, it definitely was there. And I can remember, like I was never, you know, super macho or anything like that or um, homophobic. But I would definitely be careful about what I would do and what I would say. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that I remember always is, you know, people would say, oh, you're such a good husband. You do so many nice things and such a good dad, which is a whole nother podcast in itself. But um, I can remember like beating myself up internally, like every time I'd get a compliment like that, mm-hmm. because I felt like I was doing all that extra stuff to keep that door shut versus actually just loving April and loving my kids. And even though it wasn't the romantic love that she thought it was, it was definitely love. Like, um, I mean, I'd do anything in the world for her now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. It almost sounds like the more you, I don't know if this feels like dramatic language, but the more you checked off your list on a day-to-day basis or even played a part, played a role, it felt like you were somehow um, being submissive to the standards rather than defiant Mm. and asserting your own joy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Gosh, it's such a dark place. I, I mean, well... Anyone within the the community knows what it's like, Mm -hmm. but when you've, when you've built a life and there's like something that I know now is such a small part of who I am, Mm -hmm. but at the time it's such this huge black spot on your life. Um, and everything is predicated on that and all that you are is a fraud because of that one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it is really challenging. Um, I think it's one of the, it is the reason why I work with guys specifically who've been down the same path as me, because there's so, there's just some uniqueness to it Mm -hmm. that it's hard for some to relate to, Mm -hmm. or maybe these guys just feel comfortable with me. I don't know. For all of the above. I do agree with you though. Yeah. You know, I think there's, um, I've been lucky to work with men and women in this particular arena as well. And one of the things that I find comes up very often is what I call kind of updating the self-concept. You know, my checklist as a pastor's kid was to be good and um, straight and macho and, and do all these religious things that satisfied the list. And then when I came out, it was almost like I, I loved what you were kind of mentioned, but it felt like, I had lost my bearings, like who the heck was I, but also what structure kind of governed my identity and almost kind of like my new branding, you know, mm-hmm. and it felt so weird to find an internal compass that guide that was going to guide me because that felt wrong. It felt too good to be true, but it also felt like this extreme selfishness to say, I get to choose. 
this defiant joy and what it looks like and how I express it. And that was almost too big of a gift. Mm-hmm. You, you do often feel like you're waiting on that shoot, the other shoe to drop or whatever that saying is, you know, like, and um, one of the things that I work with guys on is, and I've heard you do it um, as positive affirmation and affirming yourself. And I um, help guys see that, you can undo the damage a lot faster than the damage was done. If you really focus in on the positive affirmations and kind of working on who you are um, and defining who you are. Um, And it's the hardest thing though. Um, I mean, I understand it. It's the hardest thing for these guys to get just to say something nice about themselves (laughs) and to help start building out that, that internal compass, I guess, or understanding who they are Mm -hmm. because for so long, they're defined by the titles that were given to them from outside. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One kind of key term that we use often is body surveillance. It's almost like there's a surveillance camera that hangs out in front of me and the wire connects back into my own head. So I'm watching myself move about the cabin. You know, am I sitting the right way? Am I talking the right way? Am I moving my hands the right way? Am I um, highlighting the things for this person that they want me to highlight so that I can get them to see me in this way? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that little machine just never turns off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing that you mentioned that I've heard you mention and that um, is how we... um, It was with your last podcast, how we get so good at knowing what makes the other person comfortable and sacrifice ourselves mm-hmm. to ensure that they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and this relates in a different way, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but okay. uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm an eight and it wasn't until I discovered the Enneagram that I could, um, actually be comfortable with a major part of who the who an eight is mm-hmm. um which is the challenging part and it's kind of the same thing i had grown so accustomed to um making other people comfortable in my presence and working really hard to make them comfortable my therapist called me the puppet master mm-hmm. because i would try and just fix everything versus recognizing and one of the mantras that I had to come up or one of the things that I repeated as I came out is their feelings are not my responsibility and I'm also not responsible for their bad decisions because I would carry guilt for bad decisions made you know like if April made a bad decision or whatever or like and I carried guilt because I caused that mm-hmm. and it was detaching all that mm-hmm. that took a lot of work a lot for sure yes one of the things that sounds like you're describing is actually like a really healthy boundary system Mm. we think that i think we often talk about boundaries as though there there's one barrier that protects me from everybody hurting me And I would say that what you're describing here is more sophisticated of a boundary because it's saying that one barrier not only protects people from hurting me, but it protects them from my immaturity as well. 
Mm-hmm. And in this boundary system, we say, um, your emotional reactions are part of your interpretations of me. And I'm totally willing to hear that, but I can't feel guilty for how you interpreted me. And so that's part of the boundary system is to say, I call it the internal no saying, you know, like, ah, 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 it's like, you're not allowed to feel guilty for how they interpret you, you know? And I think that's a hard thing to practice at first. Oh, it really is. And then the hard thing for me was when I got better at it and I, cause you know, it's kind of like the, okay, you see that the world doesn't fall apart when you don't intercede, right? You see that when you, you can actually be your whole self and people don't freak out or whatever, you know, you see that. Then I just think, gosh, all the energy that I spent, like molding myself and holding myself back or like, or grooming who I was for these people when it was unnecessary. And I see now that it was unnecessary. Um, that's the thing that I'm amazed at when I look back at how I may maintain the call, you know, kept the door shut. And even afterwards, um, you know, just kind of telling people that I was gay, but then that was it. Like, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you think made it so necessary? I'm, I'm thinking of you as a little kiddo in the South, I'm guessing Alabama, um, mm-hmm. trying to fit in, to not let anybody see. You know, I oftentimes felt in elementary school and even middle school, hell, all the way through my life, that there was a sticker on my forehead that it it said something horrible, you know, like faggot, queer, homo, whatever mm-hmm. the name calling was. And I felt like before the age of 13, everybody could see it but me. And I think for me, my checklist was designed to, quite frankly, stay safe. Mm. I could avoid the bullies, the disappointment of my parents. There's that, you know, that lack of boundaries there. But then also, if I checked all these boxes, I could keep like the ultimate being in the sky happy with who I am. What do you feel like it was for you? So when I think back to that, like, I don't ever remember hearing anything Mm -hmm. from like adults or anything like that. But I knew that it was wrong. And I guess, like, I can remember the first time that I understood that I was different. not really knowing what it was, but it was like first grade maybe. And we were watching the Disney version of Robin Hood. And there's this scene where Robin Hood is kind of flirting with Maid Marian. And I can remember thinking, oh, I want, I want someone to talk to me that way. But I wanted to be Maid Marian and I wanted a boy talking to me that way. Mm. And I just like, it, it was just like this shutdown. And like you said, I felt the same way. Like it was, like sissy was the word that I got called all the time. For sure. And it's just, you become so insular and it, that followed me all the way through junior high. And honestly, thank God for puberty because at that point, like I shot up and got, got a little bigger. And so I wasn't picked on as much, mm-hmm. um, but it still did feel like there was this um, 
I don't know, like it's blinking sign, like with an arrow that says queer, homo, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and then also, you know, what comes from that is like, okay, well, this is bad obviously because everyone's like they're saying it when you're when you're young they're saying it in a way to hurt you Mm -hmm. um and obviously sissy is meant to be you know nothing that's fun to be called but i just that's what i remember most like it wasn't a great experience and there was nothing that i ever consciously did Mm -hmm. so it's like you become so conscious of your actions that you start working against them to try and fix it. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that surveillance camera is designed to stop mm-hmm. anything wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As you kind of made peace with yourself, what did it look like to start embracing defiant joy? I mean, I'm sure some of that was really fun and easy but i'm sure some of that was also really scary and hard Mm. yeah um so it's interesting and i where my mind goes with this is so it was about three years ago that i really started working on myself to understand who i was Mm -hmm. um a gratitude practice affirmations all that kind of came into play to help me start seeing who i was and understand who i am And the scary part is where I do maybe push the queerness envelope a little bit for where I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's silly stuff. Like sometimes I'll wear fingernail polish. You know, it's not a big deal, but it can be like I I went, I I was doing this on purpose, but I went to get a pedicure with um, my daughter and April, my kid's mom. And I was like, okay, I'm going to push the envelope here because April is supportive, but she feels like because she's not in our community, she feels like there's a lot of blowback towards kids, the kids. Um, I'm like, I'm going to get toenail polish. So I got my toes painted and April was like, I can't believe you're doing this. And finally, Emma was like, just, just make sure he doesn't pick out something ugly. Like, I mean... It's not a big deal. And that for me was very uncomfortable and I was pushing it. And I know it seems very trite, but it's where I really started ex- just pushing the envelope just to kind of expose April a little bit to the world. And then, you know, when you go to a pride festival, I mean, wearing fingernail polish is nothing, you know? So it, it, um, there's that. And then there's also, the scariest part was honestly coming to terms with me as a good person Mm -hmm. because you get so comfortable in your self-hatred and Mm self-loathing and it becomes like your warm prickly blanket. (laughs) Oh yes. And so like when the hard work, I think, comes at when you recognize that you're this great, wonderful unicorn of a human, then you, when people come at you, 
it's like you really have to work to say, no, that's their issue, not my issue. Whereas when you were in that dark spot, it's just real easy to wrap that prickly blanket around you and go and like, and I think that was a scary work of letting that go and really pushing just to be myself and be a light that we all should be. Um, but that was the scariest part for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of this warm blanket. Uh, we wrap ourselves in blankets when we're all alone, usually. You know, mm. we're sitting in that dark room with the TV playing and we're all wrapped in this blanket. Nothing's challenging us. We're feeling isolated and lonely, but it's also pretty comfortable mm-hmm. when no one's looking at us. That, that surveillance camera's turned off and we just get to rest for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sadly, the context, as you're mentioning, is that self-loathing. And so it's so easy to stay there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It sounds like one of the things that you're kind of describing is really learning how to, first of all, experience yourself as beautiful and then stepping over the fear to really assert yourself and your preferences, to really not only embrace them, but then to express them. And that's a totally different process. It is for sure. We want to make sure that we are a resource for queer people, no matter where you are in the world. And that's why we offer support and process groups. If you know of a trans teen that might need support or community, or maybe you're wanting to deepen your connections, I Am Council's groups could be a great fit for you. Learn more at IamCouncil.com. That's IamCouncil.com. You know, one of the things that I told you, like I created this brand, Live Out Proud, and I still, like I'm wearing this shirt right now. I'm going to take my daughter to a softball lesson, a hitting lesson. I'm going to wear this shirt. This, This shirt is... I mean, this logo, a friend of mine created it and it means a lot to me, but it's still a little uncomfortable for me to wear it mm-hmm. in, in this area because, and I mean, so I made it oh, awesome. so that it's kind of incognito, but people still are kind of like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, enough to question. And I, I still deal with that. And then Honestly, what has helped me is just being vocal, mm-hmm. like talking to guys that have been in my situation and feeling that responsibility. Again, type eight, you know, go change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, feeling that responsibility pushes me forward along with knowing that if my child were doing this, I'd be so proud of them. Mm-hmm. You know? Totally. And so that, um, yes, yeah, so that's what comes to mind. And that's how I deal with it is like, I mean, I still deal with it, mm-hmm. like pushing that, expanding that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, one of the things that's really standing out to me is the word defiant, that this is a defiant joy. And I think it's a, a perfect word for it, mostly because it does require that we go countercultural, but also another facet of this word is that it is inherently against the grain 
Mm. We're taught to never be defiant. And so this, I could, I know personally that when we want to use this defiant joy, it comes at a risk of not only the rejection, but it comes at a risk of sometimes being unsafe, that we have no idea how people will respond to us. But it also comes with this, again, this internal boundary that says, I have to be defiant and occupy this space in order to be authentic. Mm. And I think that takes rehearsal Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, You know, if it's toenail polish in Alabama or wearing a, I don't know, wearing something that's totally authentic in New York City, I mean, it, it still takes rehearsal to step out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, you, you said something that resonated when you said occupy this space. And I sometimes will say to myself and I'll say to the guys like own the space you occupy, meaning not only in the room, be present and allow yourself to be seen a hundred percent, but also internally the space inside of you, you need to own that message inside of you of who you are and, and the wonderful human that you are, like really own that space internally because there's so many voices and messages from the past that are just bouncing around in our head. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you really need to own that. And, and I think that that is what I've had to practice to get to the point where I can push the envelope that's for me, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just reminding myself that, no, I am the person, like, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, to be ashamed of it. I'm not going to hide it. Um, yeah. I remember I took my partner Joe to New York as a, surprise trip during Christmas one time and we were walking down Fifth Avenue. We were right by the Rockefeller Center and there was a, the Cole Haan store and there was this brown leather tote. It was made for men, but it looked like a woman's tote bag. And I, we walked past the window and I wanted it so badly. And I didn't say anything and we walked around, we looked at the tree and then we walked past the window again and I wanted it so badly, but I could not envision myself carrying that brown leather tote on my shoulder. And for some reason, we walked in there and I'm looking at shoes and I'm looking at the bag and I try on some shoes and I'm looking at the bag and I try on a coat and I'm looking at the bag. (laughs) And finally, I'm just like, I have to buy this bag. It is in in my version, in, in my context, I guess I should say, wearing this bag is a defiant move to show up wearing this bag in front of my Hispanic parents, my, his, my machismo family um, in, the, in the Denver culture that isn't very fashion forward or at least wasn't back then. And thinking like, how am I going to be, you know, this 130 pound small little Latino carrying a brown leather tote on the streets of Denver? Like, I'm gonna get, my, I mean, my ass is gonna get kicked. Like, what the hell am I thinking? But I could not leave it behind because it felt like I had found a part of me 
-hmm. And I wasn't willing to leave part of me behind anymore. And so I buy the bag, I put all my stuff in it, I'm walking down the street. And of course, you hear people, you know, men driving by, homo, faggot, or whatever the words are. And I found this kind of like this inner champion, this, this kind of Isaac's defender that I didn't know was there. And it was this voice of self-esteem that said, if they knew who you were and the love that you possess, the camaraderie, the fact that you might even be able to change their life as a therapist and that you're willing to let them change your life because they bring some sort of inherent beauty too, that they might regard me and treat me very differently. And I think that was the beginning for me, this brown leather toe that I still have that really taught me to cherish myself and to see myself as possessing a gift that other people, even my oppressors or even the mm-hmm. out there that they would even benefit from that and yeah they gave me kind of this courage that i still use you know if i'm wearing some funky pair of pants or i'm growing my hair out and if i you know, whatever it might be it's like but there is a beautiful core and i want i don't want to lose that and people can't see it just like you're saying i can't feel guilty for that anymore can't stay small Mm -hmm. to protect them yeah i love that story i love the the power came really when the opposition came at you Mm -hmm. i mean that that's what and it and to take it like and to blow it out a little bigger like you, you know you sharing that story empowers other people and then it is like you do become the superhero and you know and and that's what i think is so important to our community and that's to me what defiant joy is like you think about it i mean when you think about stonewall right and you and you hear and you read the history of it all and you read that it was you know the trans community and drag queens that actually like threw down and started like started the change and it was like these people that were the fringe of the fringe found their inner badass mm-hmm. and they were defiant. And my guess is, I mean, I just taking, I don't know, I'm going to project a little bit here, but my guess is there was probably some joking and some like laughing going on as they were throwing trash cans through shit. Like, you know, and there was joy, there was some joy in that because one it's just the release of all this, that you have that Mm -hmm. comes at us in the community Mm -hmm. and i gosh i have such a i feel this real sense of responsibility especially those of us that are not considered fringe i hate that well i don't know how to say this any better but like those of us that are more mainstream within the community like we really need to step up and like kind of be the shield for the community and and project that so that we can move society forward. Mm-hmm. That's a really big proposition, but that's what I, that's just what I feel like, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think it, it kind of in, I, what I hear you saying is for those of us who might have more privilege or yes. more prevalence that if we band together and really 
kind of use our privilege in the ways that we can to help protect others, but even move social progress mm-hmm. along. Like in some ways, it's kind of um, a task in front of us, a challenge if we so choose to engage it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, and maybe it's just because I, I try to always go towards a happy side is like, honestly, I know that me being happy and joyful while defying what the patriarchal system that we're in is putting on us for sure is like just that extra little eh Mm -hmm. that gets them (laughs) you know i think that's the eight part of you because i i'm i want to insert some of that joy when i'm being defiant but i don't know if i have it quite yet (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah i recorded a tiktok yesterday uh, or a couple of days ago for the the laws that they're coming, these heinous laws that they're coming out, mm. Texas and in Florida. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like slamming my fist on the table and I'm like getting angry. But I do agree with you. If I search deep enough or even think of it in a different way, there is some joy in there saying like, hell yeah, I just asserted my voice. I protected my community. I'm chipping away at this prejudice bigotry thing that we got going on. And I'm happy. I am so happy to stand in there and do whatever I can to protect these queer children. Mm. It's, yeah. It drives me crazy, but I do think that is one version of joy that I do experience. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the law. So um, I have a friend who's executive director of um, One Orlando Alliance. My boyfriend lives in Central Florida. He's a nine. So it's really funny to watch us together. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> But, um, you know, he's, um, Josh, my friend is organizing all this stuff. So I have this t-shirt business. So, and all I kept thinking is I'm like, they're saying, don't say gay bill. And I'm like, I just want to be like, gay, 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 gay. And so I created this t-shirt It's the state of Florida and it's got little bubbles that say gay, 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 and hashtag say gay. So we're selling them to raise money for his, but that's the way I think of defiant joy is like, and yes, it's very much a temperamental tantrum like it is, but it's also, I think it's me. It is probably me using, no, it is me using my privilege where I can do that and say, this is ridiculous. Like, and let me tell you why this is ridiculous. And I think the bigger, the bigger responsibility within our community, especially those that have privilege is to um, not only be the defender, but also to educate those that are allies, but not allies. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that I noticed when I came out is how people can separate me from a bigger issue that dramatically impacts me. Mm-hmm. And it's like the human brain is fascinating. So when I came out, my family was actually very supportive. And um, I was shocked. I thought I was going to be written off. At that point, I was like, okay, this is what's going to happen. Well, then when um, marriage was legalized, on social media, they just blew up in like how you would think that a conservative Alabama family would. And Mm -hmm. I was so... I was confused because my partner at the time and I, um, he and I had just been on a family trip where we all stayed in this big log cabin and like everything everybody was fine and i was like 
it, the disconnect between me and which I don't know how to really wrap my brain around it mm-hmm. because I'm like, I'm appreciative of the support for me, but then also the vitriol that they were just spewing about my community, which is me again, and then having a disconnect. So I think the responsibility of those of us that have that assimilate more in mainstream is to educate people that don't really understand why these laws are so, um, why they're so terrible. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's a response. One of the things that I hate is like that it's all about sex for people that are not gay or within the queer community. It's all about sex. And one of the things that I love that you say, Isaac, is what if we were able to emotionally come out? Mm. Like you blew my mind one day, Mm. (laughs) 5 a.m. in the gym. And I'm like, holy, like I have like a moment because it's your, it's on that episode where you did the masculinity. um, And you talk about emotionally coming out. And what if instead of talking about, our sexual attraction, we talk about, this is how I feel seen. This is how I feel loved. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens to be with a person that shares the same gender as me. Totally. And it's like, and I said this, like with my boyfriend now, um, like if people were to look at us and how we are together and say that that's ugly, and the love that is between us, then they just never experienced love. And frankly, there's probably a lot of straight people that are just jealous because I do feel like once we break out of who we are and we become comfortable with our queerness, we experience life mm-hmm. so much more fully mm-hmm. once we break that first barrier, you know. But I love that concept of emotionally coming out. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. I do think when our families understand our our straight cisgender family members, when they understand that their love is exactly like ours and their okay. authenticity is exactly like ours, then I think we help deconstruct the fear that allows them to feel the vitriol almost as though they're protecting something, even if it means protecting the culture against us, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, I, I do think that the process has been really slow for my family. You know, my parents who are ministers and I, they have come to this really beautiful place after goodness how long has it been oh 16 years of being out wow um where i think they finally understand that this isn't about a preference i want to do with my body and more about the way i'm emotionally fastened together and i think that for me is one of the ways that we focus on the joy part of defiant joy. It's, it's saying, I have to find this willingness, this kind of gladiator who's willing to be defiant and get in there and fight in the arena because the joy is worth it. 
And mm-hmm. I really, really, really appreciate this phrase, defiant joy. What do you feel like if you could describe your version of joy, what you're fighting for, what it feels like, or how you feel it? How would you characterize joy? It's the comfort of being in a space where I can be with my kids and their full on personalities, my ex wife, baby mama, whatever you want to call her, (laughs) best friend, um, and my boyfriend, and like not giving a damn what anybody thinks. That to me is joy. And like that comfort level of knowing that I've gotten to the point of if somebody says, well, that's kind of weird. And I'm able to say, really, is that weird? Mm-hmm. Or is it weird that when people divorce, they use their kids as torture devices for each other? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and like, and it's kind of, it's a, maybe it's a bizarre thing, but that's how I feel joy. Like, knowing that my life did not turn out any way that I planned and that I am the most comfortable that I've ever been and that I can smile every day and be good with it. And not just good with it, like really like, like take it in and absorb it and feel it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something that you mentioned that made me think like, um, her boyfriend's name's Adam and he's, he's a gaby. So, um, but we're the same age and, you know, um, same, similar past. We were at the beach and we held hands walking down the beach. And I can remember like just it being a surreal moment, Yeah, you know, and it's like, that's what I would love to say to people. And I wish people could understand how those moments, which are taken for granted so much by people that have always been able to do that. Mm-hmm. how they actually feel because that to me is what it's all about like it's not about the sexual stuff it's about those those moments of connection that can be so powerful but seem so benign to everyone else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure those moments of connection i think that those moments they're not only worth fighting for, they help contribute to our self-fulfillment. But I think connection is what we're made for. Mm-hmm. And this defiant joy to fight for those moments of connection, I think that is a, a very peculiar and special, I might even say sacred form of authenticity to say I'm finally fulfilling the role, even outside of myself, that I've been designed. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean romance. It doesn't necessarily mean romantic love, but those connections and fighting for them the way that we feel them, I, I feel like is so, so, so um, essential. I don't even want yeah. to say important. It just feels like the fabric of who we are. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, you know, take it, you're right. It's not even the romantic, like when you're being who you are and you're, you're exuding that joy in defiance of what society says that you're supposed to be, 
Your connections with every human that you come across are more real. They're more um, fulfilling. Like even like now I actually have friends. Like when I was in the closet, people thought that I was their best friend mm-hmm. and I would have never classified them as friends because they didn't know anything about me. Like wouldn't even know my birthday. Mm-hmm. But I was so good at like talking about them and like how I kept that door shut, right? It's like they thought we were best friends. But now I actually have legit friendships, mm-hmm. male, female, straight, gay. And it's all because I am just walking through life joyful and by default defiant of society, what society is saying is okay. The defiant part, it it almost sounds like it's, I'm I'm percolating something. I can't really put my finger on it yet, but it feels like um, anti-shame. It sounds like it's asserting your own voice, but the defiant joy sounds like self-respect. And that self-respect becoming self-love, showing love and this massive ripple effect. Yeah. I think there's like, so I've been debating on whether to share this or not because of how it sometimes can be perceived. But for me, the defiant joy, like when I, I, I practice this thing where I've become a superhuman, like a super, like in my mind, if I'm scared or whatever, or I'm nervous about something, I, I build this persona in my head. And it never fails. It's always a powerful black female that I build in my head of how I'm going to enter a space. And it's like, and I don't know why this is popping up, but I just feel like I'm going to share it with you. Like that to me is the thing. And you said Mm self-respect. And um, that is what I have always admired about strong women. And particularly when you look, you know, and you strong black women that I've come in, Countered with is the amount of self-respect and how they demand that level of respect in a space. Um, that's what triggered it. And that for me is absolutely right. Like it is all of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I kind of, I like the um, notion kind of, underlying all of this is as we embrace our own authenticity, we liberate others to do the same. And that's kind of a mock-off version of a Marianne Williamson quote, but it is true. You know, that Mm -hmm. these, that powerful black women, I think all of them are very, they're all powerful, but they show us a a part of who we are, this Mm -hmm. power that demands and and creates self-respect and Sounds like yeah. a powerful thing to embrace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I um one of the things that I make sure I do when I'm working with guys that particularly out of the church background, I'm not gonna be say it on here, but I'm I'm very intentionally crass mm-hmm. about a lot of things mm-hmm. just to break down their barriers of what they're comfortable with and mm-hmm. what and and to get them to realize that. And I think there's a lot to be said. Like if I can break that barrier, similar to what you said, I'm liberating them from the box of the church or whatever is holding them back. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Sounds like you're doing fun, great, meaningful work. I love it. I, I, I am sometimes amazed by like, um, people that have like large practices because it is like, I'll take on three or four clients at once Mm -hmm. and we work together for a short time because I focus on the conversations and how to help them have strong conversations when they're coming out or to, you know, to deflect or whatever. So they're not impacted by the words that people say. Mm -hmm. Um, So we work in like sprints. I have to take reprieve though. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh-huh. Recharge. Yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I once walked out of, um, I was an adjunct professor and I walked out of a class where we were talking about empathy and I was demonstrating it and we were doing this experiential exercise and I walked out depleted and I went to my mentor and said, why was I so exhausted? I was crying in my car on the way home. And she said, Isaac, it's exhausting to swallow glory. And I will never forget that, you know, to, to mm-hmm. swallow so much beauty and to, to, to see how powerful you can be to change someone's life. That's a lot to take in. Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah. Good for you. Before we end, is there anything that you haven't said that you wanted to make sure you said? I think I would talk to those guys that are listening to us incognito, you know, that have found you or, and, and they're still in the closet just to say it's time. Mm. It can be time. It's, there's too much in you that you're hiding that the world needs to see. I agree. Yes. You know, and I, I think there's like the political part where we're like, come out, you know, like you deserve that space. And by all means, yes. And I think from like a a practitioner perspective, it's like there is so much beauty in you that the world needs to see and for you to experience how people see it. You know, like I want all of your friends to be like, dude, I had no idea. And seeing this new part come out of you makes me so happy for you and seeing people respond that way is life-changing and then you're like why the hell was i in the closet for so long (laughs) well yeah and you know it's funny like i've had stories and you know i'm in a couple of groups on facebook and all that where even the guys say that parents or friends as they see them more where they're out and they're smiling and they're happy and there's not that cloud. Like we don't realize how much the closet puts a cloud on us or like a, a dark filter. I mean, a dimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect way to say it. A dimmer. Like, um, yeah. I mean, there's just so much that the world will see once you flip that switch. Mm -hmm. Love it. I agree. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Oh, for sure. It was so fun to spend time with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you hear about queer relationships? How did you stumble upon it? Um, Jen Hatmaker. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if it was the episode that she did with her daughter. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, at some point. She mentioned us in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's how I came. And I was so... 
I know that, like I said, you needed a reprieve too. But then when the new episode hit my phone, I was like, oh my gosh, yay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Cool. Society puts a lot of pressure on us to do things the quote unquote normal way. Over the last several years, I have sat down with queer spouses and straight marriages and heard many stories of religious abuse, false spiritual hope, and even cravings to just fit in and belong. I get it. I spent many years in conversion therapy just so that I might find a comfortable life in a religious family. But as you can hear from today's guest, normal isn't what society tells us. It is what is true for ourselves, and most times, for us in the queer community, that means exercising defiant joy. I want to plaster that all over my world. Defiant joy is a great component to use because it is a way to shove a stake in the ground where we are happy. We can set up shop and start creating and building the lives we most deeply crave. Defiant joy to me seems like an exercise, a practice of asserting well-being in a world that defines joy in other ways with other terms. But to be defiant isn't a naive act. It's to be countercultural counter-patriarchal, and show the world all the color that we inspire. The cool thing about Defiant Joy is not that we are introducing something new, but proving that diversity is not only safe, but that it is necessary. As a result, Defiant Joy is anti-shame, and we all know the world needs more of that. Today's guest proves that not all divorce and not all coming outs lead to ruin. His tale of self-acceptance is also one of teamwork, spousal unconditional love, and true connection that supersedes legal commitments. I once dated a man who had previously been married to a woman. They had two adorable children before divorcing, and what I observed in them was that they were still best friends. They met every Sunday for margaritas to go over their calendars and check in on parenting, money, schedules, and their children's development. I saw a chemistry, not one that looked like romance, but one that looked like true partnership. As a clinician, I always hold this example of perseverance out in front of me when I'm working with a queer spouse who comes out to their straight spouse in my office. As they sit there wondering if their world will employ, having examples like today is very stabilizing. Coming out to a straight spouse is not easy, I get that. But I also want to inspire hope that coming out as a queer partner in a heterosexual context doesn't have to be filled with doom, isolation, and rejection. Of course, we want to stay safe wherever it feels like a threat is headed our way. Body surveillance keeps us on guard so that we can protect if need be. But when we are safe, we should remember to slowly dismantle the body surveillance so that we can live liberated and spontaneously expressing our most genuine selves. To today's guest, thank you for inspiring me to embrace a defiant joy, the emotional posture of certitude, self-acceptance, and boldness. I will forever be grateful while I step into my joy because of you. Thank you for sharing your story and being vulnerable. We will all benefit from your wisdom and your growth. To follow today's guest and his work, you can find him on Instagram at Kirk underscore Barnett 80. 
I hope all of you take time to love yourselves and create the love lives and relationships you truly crave. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.